this morning um, is Family Sunday. Before I dive into our sermon, I want to just recognize that we've got some kids here with us. So kids, where are you guys at? Let's try that again. Kids, where are you guys at? We want to, okay, they're up there, a lot in the balcony, good. Well, it's great to have you guys with us. Um, kids, question for you, how many of y'all want to know how the world is going to end? Does that sound exciting? Okay, good. If that sounds exciting, then I want to encourage you to play, pay really close attention this morning, because that's what we're going to be talking about all morning long. I've, been, I've entitled this sermon, The End, uh, because we finally reached the end of our study uh, through the Gospel of Mark together this year, and I'm also realizing that I forgot to give a copy of my uh, slide changes to Eli back there, so my wife can run and do that for me. Um, this is the end. We've re- reached the end of the Gospel of Mark together this year. Uh, if you've been with us from the start, way back in March, you recall that uh, we began during the Lenten season in uh, chapters 14 through 16 with Jesus' anointing, his last supper, betrayal, arrest, trial, all culminating in his crucifixion and resurrection on Good Friday and Easter, respectively. And then we jump back to chapter 1, and we have been working our way back ever since up here to chapter 13, where we arrive today. And next week will be uh, part two on chapter 13. And then after that, uh, I just want to go ahead and give you a preview of, of where we're going for the next few weeks here as, together as a church. We will begin after that our um, Advent series uh, on December 8th entitled Tis the Season um, in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And then I'm very excited this morning to announce that officially we will be kicking off the new year in uh, 2020 with a 10-week a, a study on the toughest texts in the Bible, um, tackling the most difficult topics in the Bible. And so you won't want to miss that. More on all that to come. But speaking of tough texts, we've got a doozy this morning in Mark 13. Uh, I had originally planned to to tackle all of chapter 13 together this morning in one fell swoop. I realized in preparing this week that I'd bitten off way more than I could chew in one 40-minute sermon. And so this is going to be part one of two. Would you stand with me as you're able um, for the reading of God's Word? I will read it for us. We'll just be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. 1 through 13. I'll read from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen here in front of you. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began saying to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to the trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Father, I was just thinking, reflecting on my drive home yesterday. I heard NPR story of an atheist just contemplating the meaning, existence of life and death and existentialism. And God, we just thank you that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, that we don't have to be fearful about what comes next. Um, and God, even this morning as we spend time studying and reflecting on uh, the ultimate end of it all, we pray that um, it would not be out of a spirit of, of fear, but for those of us who are believers, you would use this morning to encourage us, to embolden us, uh, to stir a passion in us for your good news and for seeing it come to reach many so that they might be included in the Lamb's Book of Life on that day. Father, we pray all this for the building of your church for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, this sermon this morning is going to be highly informational in nature. Um, I've cut most of my kind of usual jokes and per personal anecdotes. My goal here is simply to explain as quickly as possible this difficult yet important passage as best I can. And so I'll warn you now, we're going to be drinking from the proverbial uh, fire hose this morning. So you get your pens out, get them ready, jot down as many notes and scripture references as you can manage so you can go back and further study all this on your own later. I fully anticipate and expect that we should get plenty of good Ask the Pastor uh, questions for our podcast arising out of this sermon as well. So make sure you translate those notes uh, at the info bar on your way out. Grab a card for Ask the Pastor who knows you could be featured in our uh, next episode of the West Hills podcast. So um, here is your outline of the entire chapter where we're headed the next two weeks. In Mark 13, verses 1, through, 1 and 2, we have the end of the temple. Verses 3 through 13, we've got the end of the present age. Verses 14 through 23 is the end of the tribulation. And then verses 24 through 37 is the end of the world as we know it. For those of you raised in the 90s like me, who remember that song. Um, and we will cover the, just the first two of those sections uh, through verse 13 this morning and the next, last two next week. So Mark 13 is commonly uh, referred to as the Olivet Discourse, so named because Jesus delivers most of this teaching from, as we hear in verse 3, the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem on Wednesday of Holy Week. That's two days before his death on Good Friday. R.C. Sproul notes that there are basically two schools of thought on interpreting the Olivet Discourse. You can understand all of Mark 13 as a prophecy referring to and finding its fulfillment in the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 AD, or you can interpret these as eschatological predictions. Eschatological is a fancy theological term 
for end times theology. How is all of this, the world, history, humanity as we know it, how's it all going to end? Now, the reality is that many evangelical scholars, including Sproul himself, take a sort of in-between approach with Mark 13, and they view verses 1 through 23 as predicting the end of the temple in 70 AD, and then verses 24 through 37 as prophesying the end time still yet to come. After studying this text in depth, albeit not uh, exhaustively, of course, this past week, personally... Obviously, all I can do is share with you my interpretation. I think the textual evidence best favors the eschatological reading. So that's what we're going to take, the approach we're going to take this morning. Uh, This is the position taken by John MacArthur, amongst others. And as usual, I will be leaning heavily on MacArthur's commentary this morning, um, especially this morning. And here's why MacArthur argues for that interpretation. He says, The Lord indicated that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Verse 10 something that clearly had not occurred by AD 70. The Lord also spoke of a time of tribulation such as had not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. That's verse 19 that we'll get to next week. Those words cannot refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 since they speak of a time when the calamity on earth will be worse than it ever has been in all of human history, even during the time of Noah's flood. Right, so destruction of the temple, bad. Noah's flood, worse. So we've got to be prophesying about something else. Also, MacArthur goes on, important details from both the Olivet Discourse and other biblical prophecies were not fulfilled in AD 70, such as the destruction of the nations that attacked Jerusalem, that's from Zechariah 12, the visible return of Christ, Zechariah 14, and others, the judgment of the nations by the Lord Jesus himself, Matthew 25, and the establishment of his earthly reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years, Revelation 20. Those unfulfilled prophecies indicate that the horrors described here by Jesus in these verses are future and cannot refer to that first century event. So I would just start by contextualizing all of this. You know, we're discussing the end times, a good time to pause and remind us that while all of the Bible is equally inerrant and inspired by God, it is not all equally clear nor is it all equally important. Yes, all scripture is important, but not equally so. There are differing levels of centrality to the Bible's contents. So I've uh, drawn up a a slide that might help us kind of understand this. There are the core text and doctrines, the gospel, that God is holy, that you and I are sinful, that we need a savior, and it is by grace through faith that we can be saved alone. The gospel, that is the most core. We might also include other doctrines uh, that we find in West Hill's Statement of Faith in this core category, the Trinity, etc. Then there's, outside of that, things that we might call the clear category, those beliefs that are important and clear biblically, but are not salvation issues. The Bible stances on things like gender, sexuality, complementarianism, even the inerrancy of Scripture. It is possible, albeit not advisable, to reject the inerrancy of Scripture and still make it to heaven. All right, so then outside of that, we've got core, clear, contested issues that are important, but less than 100% clear biblically. And therefore, they are debated amongst faithful evangelical believers. So things like infant versus uh, believer's baptism. Things like continuationist versus a cessationist position on uh, speaking in tongues. And finally, there are consequential less, I just wanted to stick with the C's, 
that's not a word. It's inconsequential. Inconsequential issues, relatively unimportant and therefore unclear biblically. Questions like how big are angels and what was Jesus' middle name? Not important. Bible doesn't weigh in on it. So, uh, so to remind us, the end times, what we are discussing this morning squarely fits in the third category. This is contested, okay? It's important, but faithful believers can and will and do disagree on this stuff. And even within that contested category, we're not all going to be equally passionate about the same issues either. Before I immersed myself in this study this week of the end times, the end times stuff wasn't really my jam. Okay, and, and moreover, for those of you who are all about it, like when you saw the, the, the back of the bulletin this morning, you started giggling with glee, y'all freaked me out a little bit, if I'm honest. Um, because on the one hand, as Jesus himself is going to say in verse 32 of this passage, concerning that day or that hour when the end will come, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be careful, because not even Jesus, while he was on earth, knew when all this was going to take place. And so be careful, brothers and sisters, not to let your enthusiasm turn into speculation. But on the other hand, many of us are guilty of just the opposite, aren't we? Myself included. We think this end time stuff is so complex, it's so cryptic, it's, it's so, frankly, irrelevant. What does the end of the world have to do with my day-to-day life? That we just ignore it altogether. Because we're narcissistic. We're not God-centered. God must think it's pretty important because there's a lot about it right here in his word. And so, moreover, in these passages on the end times, God emphasizes the importance of our hearing it, of our paying attention to it, of our understanding these things. God didn't write his word to confuse us, friends. He wants us to know this. He desires our comprehension. Jesus will say in verse 14 of this very passage, let the reader understand. Similarly, the book of Revelation opens with the encouragement. In chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who understand. You can understand this stuff. You can. If you care enough to study it and pay attention this morning, and if the Holy Spirit opens your spiritual eyes to see Okay, but why does it matter? Why bother? As MacArthur exhorts us, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ represents the apogee, that's the climax of human history. It is the blessed hope, Titus 2, the sincere longing, 2 Timothy 4, and the eager expectation, 1 Corinthians 1, of every true believer. I was reminded of this at our life group recently. One of our members who recently lost his teenage son, remarked when we were discussing, uh, he said, I'm, I'm ready for Jesus to return and make all this new. Our suffering in this life has a way of drawing our eyes forward to something better that we're waiting for, doesn't it? Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but the desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And Mark 13 is Jesus' promise that our hope, Titus 2.13, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will not be deferred forever. It will one day be fulfilled. And so, 
With all of that in view, let's work our way through Mark 13, verse by verse together. First, we've got the end of the temple in verses 1 and 2. This specific, just these two verses are referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We hear, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Kent Hughes notes the symbolic parallelism here between Jesus' departure from the second temple here in the first century, which had been rebuilt in the year uh, 516 BC by Zerubbabel, as recorded in the Old Testament book of Ezra, and then renovated by King Herod the Great just before Jesus' birth in the first century BC. So Jesus, the parallelism between Jesus' exit from that temple and the prophet Ezekiel's description of the departure of God's glory from the first temple Solomon's temple just prior to its destruction in the year 587 at the hands of the Babylonians. Ezekiel 10 and 11 describe God's glory rising above the temple, departing from the city, and stopping above the mountain east of it, this very same mountain of olives. And by the way, want to guess where Zechariah 14 foretells that the Lord will return in his second coming at the end times? It's the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. Now, despite being accused at his trial in Mark 14 of threatening to personally destroy the temple, Jesus doesn't threaten that here. Jesus simply predicts in verse 2 that it will be thrown down. His earlier prophecy, while he had been at the temple in John chapter 2, when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, was not about the literal physical temple, He himself gives us commentary, John gives us commentary in verse 21, that he was speaking about the temple of his body, his resurrection. And so it wasn't Jesus, at least not directly, who would destroy the city of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70, but rather the Roman army under the general Titus Vespasian. Which brings us to verses 3 through 14, in the end of the present age, the church age, the age in which you and I now live that started with Jesus' ascension back into heaven. And I've got another uh, slide that will hopefully you can read and, and, and give you a, a framework, a map of all of this. Um, started with Jesus' ascension back into heaven in the year AD 30, will continue until the rapture, the catching up into heaven of all believers still on earth, which will occur three and a half years before the events recorded in Mark 13, verse Verses 14 through 23, which we'll study next week, the abomination of desolation. Uh, As we read in verses 3 through 13 here, things are going to get worse and worse and worse before the rapture. The rapture is, uh, is described most in depth in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. When the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then, three and a half years of even worse tribulation, at which time uh, the Antichrist will come, abomination of desolation will kick the tribulation into overdrive for the final three and a half years, at the end of which time Jesus will return for good and bring us with him back to earth, all the faithful saints who have been worshiping with him in heaven to that point and usher in his 1,000-year reign, the millennial kingdom. Okay, that's big picture. And then 
After that, after a thousand years, he's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire for the rest of all of eternity, Revelation 20.10. He will establish the new heaven, new earth, Revelation 21.1-4, where everything will be perfect. And that's all really, really good news, at least for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith. Uh, the Lord's return is our blessed hope that we look forward to. But first, we hear that things have to get really bad before they get really good. And so we read in verses 3-4, through four, And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, to get to appreciate the contrast here from verses 1 and 2 in a new question, a new matter, topic of discussion, we have to go to Matthew's parallel account of this conversation in Matthew 24, verse 3. Because we hear there that the disciples' question was, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's what they want to know about here. And so that's the the longer uh, discussion that Jesus is replying to here in verses 4 through 37. See, as John MacArthur points out, the disciples, like other first century Jews, envisioned only a single coming of the Messiah. But God intended the Messiah to come twice, once as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and then again as the conquering king, with an extended period of time elapsing between the two advents. In order to help the disciples understand that reality, Jesus gave them here a detailed reply to their question. In fact, the response found in Mark 13 constitutes the longest recorded answer ever given by Jesus to any question he was ever asked. Clearly, the Lord intended it as vitally important spiritual truth for his followers to grasp. This is important stuff. And so Jesus warns them in verses 5 and 6, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. MacArthur again notes, Though there have been many counterfeit messiahs and false prophets throughout history, both before and after the time of Christ, their numbers will vastly increase at the end of the age. Their work of deception foreshadows that of the ultimate false teacher who will be revealed during that time of tribulation, the Antichrist. Now, we will examine him more next week uh, in verses 14 and following, but let's quickly uh, consider just a few of the relevant passages concerning the Antichrist. We go to the Old Testament first, Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now let's go to the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, is symbolically designated by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation to be the beast. Okay? So in 
Revelation 11, we hear the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That's the Antichrist. But remember, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, the disciples have asked Jesus for the signs of the end of the age. What are the signs? How are we going to know that the Antichrist is soon approaching? Well, Jesus says, in addition to the false messiahs and prophets, he says in verses uh, 7 and 8, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, people have been predicting uh, the end times that they're upon us since the early church did it 20 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. That's why 1 Thessalonians was basically written, to assure the saints of Jesus' imminent return. They thought he was coming back any day. And more recently, eschatological fervor was broken out over World War I, World War II, the Cold War, you know, all the, the, the wars happening constantly in the Middle East. I'm not sure. I, I'm not old enough, but some of y'all are old enough to remember uh, Hal Lindsey's famous book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, from 1970, in which he understood a biblical generation to be exactly 40 years, and thus he dated the rapture scientifically, to 40 years after the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948, asserting that the rapture must happen by 1988. And somehow he still has a TV program. But um, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. No one, not even the Son, while Jesus was on earth, knew the day or the hour. Moreover, Even when those wars and those natural disasters do break out, don't be alarmed. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. All of human history is just beginning to go into labor. And one other sign we hear in verse 8 is that there will be earthquakes in various places. Revelation describes three of the largest quakes that the world will ever see. Revelation 6 says, I looked... When he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake, the sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. And then we hear of a second earthquake in Revelation 11. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. And then finally we hear of a third greatest earthquake in Revelation 16. There was a great earthquake such as had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities and nations fell. Babylon, the great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away. The mountains were not found. So now the islands and mountains aren't just moved. They're gone. Similarly, verse 8, there will be famines. Earthquakes, famines, wars. We hear of the famines. MacArthur notes, during the tribulation, famine will contribute to billions of deaths as one-fourth of the world's population perishes. Revelation 6, the various natural disasters that are part of God's judgment during that tumultuous time, including the poisoning of a third of the world's freshwater supply. Revelation 8 will severely affect the vegetation ecosystems of the earth. The result will be a massive loss 
of human life. Now, remember, those are the earthquakes and famines after the rapture, during the seven years of great tribulation, but there will be these smaller wars and smaller earthquakes and famines leading up to that time, Jesus says, that believers will have to endure. One last sign of the coming rapture in uh, verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives us is persecutions. He says you will be persecuted. Now, this is nothing new for Jesus's disciples, his listeners here, even when Jesus sent them out in Matthew chapter 10, sort of the pre-Great Commission test run. Jesus had warned them, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Similarly, John 16, he had told them, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Indeed, we could look at the entire book of Acts as the records of the first century fulfillments of Jesus' predictions here of the persecution that await his disciples. But that persecution wasn't just intended, doesn't stop with the first, his first century followers, friends. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's not just writing that to first century listeners. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's you and me. And Revelation reveals that the worst persecution in history is still yet to come as hatred of God and his gospel intensifies under the reign of the Antichrist. In those days, many will die for the sake of Christ. Here's the vision that that God gave the Apostle John in the book of Revelation chapter 6. He says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which uh, which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Perhaps you've heard the quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's true. Persecution might kill Christians, but it does not kill Christianity. In fact, quite the opposite. Paradoxically, persecution spreads the faith. God used persecution to export the gospel in the book of Acts, the time of the greatest evangelistic explosion in the history of the church. We hear in Acts 8.1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They were all, the church was a few thousand people in Jerusalem. God used persecution to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Jesus promises even more persecution here in Mark 13, verses 12 and 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, he says. That's a promise. Jesus has already told us in Matthew 10, 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So let's do away with gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He came to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We hear in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, just like it hated Jesus. How's that for an invite to church pitch? We're talking about make, making a big push to invite your non-Christian friends with you to, to church in January in this tough text passage. You know, people who have been burned by the church and couldn't interpret and bad and, you know, people just ignoring the, the, the hard passage of the Bible sweeping around the carpet. We're just going to expose it and invite them and just lead with our, all our, you know, our, our stuff as Christians. Thad, mentioned, you know, Thad said, hey, let's, let's make up cards, note cards of tough text for our people to hand out and give people to invite to church. I think our card should say, come be a Christian, everybody will hate you. <laughs> the church marketing company we've been working with, they keep telling me your website needs a benefit statement, a benefit statement, a catchy line that answers the question for someone checking out your church, what's in it for me? I think that should be our benefit statement. Come to West Hills, you'll get persecuted. Not by us, by the world. We're not going to persecute you. But like the more you're here, the more you get the word of God in you, the more you look and smell and, and talk and act like Jesus, the more the world will hate you. Jesus promised in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our hope isn't in the perks of church membership. As Paul said, if our hope is in this life only, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Because we should expect hardship in this lifetime as a believer. If we're not experiencing it, if your faith doesn't cost you anything, it's worth exactly what it costs you. We're just beginning to experience the beginnings of the labor pains now, right? Losing our bakeries to the LGBT machine. Chick-fil-A, selling out, cutting funding for Salvation Army. It's just the start. Churches will lose our 401c3 status in my lifetime. You can take it to the bank. It will happen. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters are routinely imprisoned and slaughtered in China, India, Africa, and the Middle East. And our persecution pales in comparison to most of our brothers and sisters around the world. And the bad news, according to Jesus, is it's only going to get worse before it gets better. The good news is it will get better. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's another promise you can take to the bank. As MacArthur reminds us, motivated by their love for Christ, true disciples willingly suffer for his sake, considering it a joy to do so, knowing that their suffering will one day be rewarded in heaven by the one who first loved them. As noted earlier, believers' ability to endure comes not from their own resolve, but from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who enables them to stand firm in the midst of adversity. Thus, 
They can face hardship with unwavering resolve, armed with a divinely granted faith that holds firmly to the promise that God will preserve and protect those who are his. And so here's where we'll end this one today, friends, and we'll pick up in verse 14 next week in the middle of that section on persecution. Did you know, notice that Jesus subtly drops in right here in the middle of the persecutions, verses 9 through 13. He subtly drops in one major clue about when the end will come. Did you catch it? In verse 10, what does he say? The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So anyone who tells you and predicts the day and hour when Jesus will return, run from them, because they're wrong. I can't tell you when the rapture will occur and kick off this giant end-of-the-world party, the rapture. That'll be a party. It's good news for us. We look forward to it. I can't tell you when that will happen, but I would bet you my paycheck that it won't be tomorrow. Why? Because according to the Joshua Project, there are 17,094 people groups, ethne, that's the Greek word used here in Mark 13, ethne, nations in the world today, 17,000, and approximately 7,165 of them are considered unreached with the gospel. That means an estimated 41.6% of the world's population today will live their entire life without ever hearing the gospel, and they don't even know a single Christian who could share it with them even if they wanted to. No hope. No hope of being saved by grace through faith. And so we're going to leave things there today. If you're, if you're like me, if you're like the brother in my life group who would prefer the new heaven and the new earth to all of this brokenness and chaos and persecution and heartbreak, failed adoptions and miscarriages, the junk that we deal with in this life here on earth, then do your part and go tell someone the gospel this week. Because we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but according to Mark 13, 10, we know it won't be until everyone at least has the chance to hear the good news. And so we'll pray in a moment, and then we'll take communion to celebrate this glorious good news that it's not all bad, that we have something to look forward to as believers on that day of judgment because we will stand dressed in Christ's righteousness alone, not our own unrighteousness, that we have good news as believers, that we don't get what we deserve. We don't get the coming judgment that others are going to get. But then after communion and we sing one more song, we'll recite our usual benediction charge from Matthew 28 that we've been left here to go and make disciples of all nations. My prayer for us this morning is that we don't ever let that get to be you know, just something that we say. It's rote. You know, it's old, tired. 
My prayer is that our reflection this morning and our, on our blessed hope to come, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ might give you and me extra motivation this week to actually go and do it, to actually go and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel because our days on this earth are too few and the need is too great. Does anybody not know an unbeliever? Anyone not know someone who is not a Christian? Okay. The need is too great to waste any more time. Amen? Let's pray.